Jack is oddly quiet. Did we lose him? <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. Did we lose him? I'm still here. <laughs> Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about open source licensing, PFSense, Elasticsearch, SSPL, that kind of stuff. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. The views and opinions expressed in the Practical Operations Podcast are our own and do not reflect the official policy or position of our employers, sponsors, or any other reference entities. The Practical Operations Podcast is not legal advice. With that out of the way, um, this episode has been a long time coming. We have been talking about this issue internally since Elastic decided to switch their license model. And covering licensing is actually a fairly involved thing. So we wanted to do a little better job of it than just talking about one one entity. Um, I'm going to start by talking about the fact that open source itself is not a business model. There's an article in the show notes from 2018 that was kind of looking at this issue more broadly before the more recent things have happened and talking about how open source software can be part of your business model, but it by itself is not actually a business model. It's just a license that you're using in part of your company. So be careful conflating the two. Yeah, I think the classic example here is Red Hat, but Red Hat is not a typical software company. They have a Linux distribution that a lot of enterprises pay for support for. So, uh, you know, I I don't like it when people are like, oh, the the first billion dollar open source company or or whatever their valuation was when people are talking about it. And yes, there's, uh, they are an, uh, open source is a big part of what they are, but it's not like they're just developing some piece of software, a, a single use piece of software. They're developing an entire platform that a lot of businesses depend on. Well, they also develop a lot of things to go in the platform, you know, th- while they're leveraging other people's open source projects to roll into theirs. They actually do a lot of bespoke development or, well, not bespoke because most of it they turn around in open source, but. <laughs> They employ a lot of developers who turn out a lot of new code. But crucially, their business model is not open source software development. Their business model is support. And they happen to do that for an open source set of software. And they're good at support. And that's why they're successful. added values, telcos, enterprise markets. That's where their money is. And and I think that's the distinction, though, is because it's an operating system. I mean, there's going to always be security patches. There's always going to be these rolling updates that they can provide that you're that companies are going to be willing to pay for. If you're a you know a Fubar library, at some point that's going to reach maturity, and possibly even you know there's going to be just trickle amount of security patches. It's not going to be worth a million dollars a year or, or whatever. It, it's just it's going to become a very small port piece. And if that's your entire business, air quote, business model, you're in trouble. Or conversely, like the all the OpenSSL issues a couple of years ago, where you have an un, a relatively low maintenance piece of software that is doesn't have a lot of funding, that is crucial to the, you know, the cornerstone of security on the internet, is not great, is not funded to the level of, of maintenance that it really needs to be funded to. And then you've got the opposite problem. Yeah, that's that's always been the 
I, I don't want to, well, I guess that is, I guess, a, a scary thing of open source, right? Is that, that there's these number of these projects, and I, I guess especially now with Node and these various uh, languages with their independent package managers where you see all the dependencies very easily, and it's like, ooh, there's this little one dependency that hasn't been touched in four years, but everybody's importing it. Why? And and uh, have we validated this? Or, or, you know, what's the process? Everybody's like, yes, this is the version or uh, this is the actual thing we're going to use. Uh, it just, uh, I guess it's good that we can see that because if it was closed source, you wouldn't be able to see it. But Well, I, this is one of those arguments with open source that even though I very much for open source drives me crazy of, well, you can see the source code. You can go in and look for it and fix it. Yeah. If I had infinite amount of time <laughs> and, you know, the infinite monkeys probably, <laughs> then I could. <laughs> but it takes so much time for me to, if I have to vet every piece of software. And that's really what Red Hat's business is, is they're rolling it all up. They're vetting it. They're keeping up with security patches. They're they're protecting you. They're and that's basically what you're paying for is them to get in between you and fifty thousand open source projects that you have no idea what any of them are doing. No, they're keeping up with them and they're keeping everything up to date. And Red Hat has a really good reputation of doing that job very well for a very long period of time. So they've earned the trust of the scientific and the financial and a bunch of other communities who say we are going to relinquish that that oversight to red hat and we're going to pay them money and we're going to support their developers to keep on doing this and we're not going to worry about vetting you know the kernel or other other things like that and i think that's a good segue into elastic I, you know i they are almost a, a unicorn of themselves they have a huge they have this hugely popular a uh, piece of software that everybody, I mean, any business you walk into, I feel like, has an Elastic stack running somewhere. Um, if if nothing else, just in dev maybe, but still, I, pretty much every place I've been into in the last 10 years has had an Elastic stack running somewhere, either in production, collecting logs, uh, powering some sort of search for their site or service, or just in dev. But Elastic has gotten extremely popular, but then they're almost become the uh, a failure of their own success to where everybody else, since it was so popular, everybody else was like, oh, well, we can offer Elastic as a, as a service or as an option to our offering. And they didn't figure out a way to monetize that. Yeah, the what we're talking about here, if, if folks don't know, this, this made the news a while ago and was pretty big about it, that Elastic, the company, has decided to shift their licensing for the Elasticsearch software they write that wraps Lucene and gives you fault tolerance, a distributed query, and all these kinds of things. And they're moving from Apache 2 to the server-side public license, which is the one that the MongoDB folks um, switched over to a couple years ago. Oh, MongoDB. And this license has some problems. Um, It was designed to prevent hosting providers, namely Amazon, from being able to host and resell Elasticsearch, the product, um, and make profit Or off. MongoDB. Well, MongoDB had a similar thing. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really interesting choice because the SSPL is not an open source license, and I don't believe it's even a free license. Um, there are clauses in both the definition of open and free that require that the license doesn't discriminate against the end use. 
So you can't put controls over, I want anybody other than people named Jack to be able to run this software. Well, it's no longer open or free. Um, it's just, it's part of the deal of open and free means free. It means open. It means people can use it. They can, they can see the, the code. They can modify the code. They can redistribute the code without penalty. And it comes with certain freedoms. This license is technically not. known as a proprietary source available license. Yeah, so you can still see the the source code to Elasticsearch itself, but the code is is no longer freely usable in a safe way for a lot of organizations. And that's a problem. And the SSPL has provisions in it that require you uh, to release your management source code, your management products, around however you manage MongoDB or, or Elastic, the, the target of the license, in your in your platform. So, for example, this might force Amazon, if they used Elastic that was licensed under the SSPL, to release a lot of the secret sauce that is Amazon's APIs and methodology for being able to manage uh, Elasticsearch instances at scale in, in an automated fashion. And, well, that's that's the value that Amazon provides. And it doesn't help that the license isn't super clear about what manage, what reselling managed stuff is versus just use because they're trying to thread the needle about, well, if you're hosting a search interface that is obviously elastic, well, you got to pay for it. Well, you, you got to, it's, it's under those license. But if it's just internal use, it's fine. But, but at what point can you decide what crosses that line and where? It's not in the license very clearly, which makes a lot of, especially large corporations say, we can't trust or validate this. We, we can't, we can't risk. None of this has been tested in court. Oh, none, none. But also the, the large corporations don't want to take the risk. They, they don't want to say, oh, suddenly our entire backend infrastructure, because it's used to support this has to be released open source. And that is the core of our company. So they just have hard rules about no SSPL, um, no AGPL, no GPL three, a couple of other things saying these licenses are off limits to this company. Yeah, even the Elastic License 2 has some uh, some extra bits that I don't really care for. Like, there's a phrase that says, and you may not remove or obscure any functionality in the software that is protected by the license key. Well, what does it mean to obscure? Does that mean if I develop a like feature and put, and, and put it into the Elastic system, is that obscuring that feature? I mean, you know... I, I, maybe a layperson would say not, but I would have, I could envision a lawsuit where uh, they debate that word obscure, and it could go towards in Elastic's favor against whatever functionality you wrote. Well, in typical fashion with licenses and, and law in general, it doesn't matter what the law says. It's what a judge interprets it as when it finally gets to court. Exactly. And nobody is willing to roll the dice given how unclear this license is that your your large corporations are going to say it's too risky find something else I, you'll remember all the years it took for the gpl v2 to actually make it to a court case that got to set precedent in the u.s and actually carried weight there was a long time of speculation about well i mean that's what the license says but nobody's actually tried it nobody's actually gone to court to see what happens yeah. and it took a long time for that to happen it took decades yeah Neither side of the whole debate wanted it to go because they didn't want it to get interpreted the other side's direction. And so it was a 
mutually <laughs> mutually assured destruction type of thing. Nobody wanted to go in there and get their stuff blown up by a ruling going the the, the other way. Yeah, and this whole discussion on Elastic is kind of part of what prompted this episode because Elastic used to be licensed under the Apache 2.0 license, which is a very free and very permissive use license with a lot of structure and a lot of rigor built into defining what those mean for companies. So a lot of corporations, for-profit corporations, feel very comfortable with the Apache 2.0 license. They feel like their lawyers understand it. They feel like their software developers understand it. They know what implications it has for their business and their ongoing revenue streams. And of course, once Elastic announces the SSPL switch, Amazon doubles down on their fork of Elasticsearch, the open distro for Elastic, that I have some issues with Amazon, but in this one, I think they're actually in the right, which is weird and kind of dirty to say, but that's <laughs> that's what I feel. No, I, I mean, that's, that's the reason I personally really like the MIT or Apache 2 license, because it is so permissive. It doesn't have the, you know, if someone's going to use my software, then I'm, I would much rather them possibly use it and maybe send back patches than to see that that I chose a very uh, restrictive license to where they're like, uh, we, we just don't even want to touch it. And I understand the philosophies and why certain people choose the more, uh, like the APG, APG, GPL or, or whatever, or GPL3. I, I understand the decision there, but for me personally, I like a more permissive license just so that there's a chance that more people will use it and possibly commit back. And if not, you know. If you want your software to be used, a permissive license. And this is very obvious that Elastic wanted their software used. <laughs> they put in a permissive license and people used it. And then they used it in ways they didn't foresee. And they said, oh crap, we don't like this. We're going to switch to a more restrictive license. And they did. And it's yep. their code. They can. I will not debate their right to choose whatever license they have. However, I have the right then to not use their software, which is unfortunately right which way I'm going to have to go. <laughs> yeah, and because of technicalities of the U.S. legal system, because Elastic didn't stomp on people using Elasticsearch, the, the service mark or the trademark, in public, so Amazon sells managed Elasticsearch. Because of that, Elastic can't now go back and sue them for using the word Elasticsearch in their marketing materials or in their product names because they lost exclusivity for the trademark. And they may try anyway, but it's almost guaranteed that that court case will get thrown out. But I mean, yeah. can you, like, if you, I understand, you know, because that's like similar to like Kleenex or uh, even Velcro, because it's actually what, Hoop and Lupin Hooker or whatever. It's not Velcro is the name of the of the um, manufacturer. Xerox. Yeah, like Xerox. I understand that. But at the same time, Elasticsearch is the name of the piece of software. So if you're a provider selling a service, what sh what would Amazon be able to call it to 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 one tell people what it is, Elasticsearch, but then not be air quotes in violation of that? I I don't think they had a case to begin with, in my opinion. Yeah, and Amazon's calling it um, the, the distribution, the open distro for Elasticsearch. Right. But I think their managed Elasticsearch service is still just... I'll have to look this up because I actually don't know what they call it right now. Good grief. I've deployed it and I don't, I'm blanking on what they their actual name for it. The Elastic Elasticsearch service. 
That's a mouthful. Not overly surprised with if it wasn't for Amazon. I made that up, but that sounds like what Amazon would say. But regardless, the other side of this, of course, is what's happened recently with PFSense and FreeBSD and WireGuard. Um, so when you move to a permissive license, it means people can take the code and kind of do whatever they want with it. And uh. if you want that, that's great. And that's a decision that you as the author of a piece of software, a piece of code can make as you release things under whatever license you feel is appropriate. But you get into these weird situations where like FreeBSD is one of the founding members of the open source initiative. They helped define what open and what free mean in the beginning. They were heavy proponents in that. They had a lot of very specific opinions about what these, how these things played out and what the differences were. And this whole mess with NetGate and PFSense and WireGuard has kind of sprung up and bitten everybody in the butt. And NetGate is in a similar position where a large part of their business model is selling and supporting open source software, quote unquote, um, specifically the PFSense um, distribution of FreeBSD, if I can call it a distribution. Uh, PFSense is a really super popular uh, firewall and router product. I use it. Um, and NetGate has done a lot to sponsor and promote and and see the FreeBSD community thrive in the last several years. So they've been a net positive uh, to the open source community. They really have. And it's a wonderful product if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, but is it open source anymore when they're, you know, when the public mirror of their code base is over six months old? And therein lies the problem. And again, well, NetGate is trying to figure out how to make money rather than just how to have people take the source to PFSense and build their own routers. You know, I mean, I remember the whole, uh, you know, when they when they started requiring, uh, what was that uh, uh, chipset feature? A&I? A&E? I think it was A&I. It was some uh, chipset feature for... AI, you know, I think? Is that it? Yes. It, onboard AES encryption feature. Correct, so. yes. It, it had to do with decrypting SSL uh, in hardware versus software. And so after version PFSense version, what, 2.3 or two, it was in the two series, you had to have that feature flag. And lo and behold, all the NetGate routers had that. And a lot of people were up in arms, but I actually understood that. I mean, I thought that was a good decision because it actually did. I mean, not for normal people using the, the router. Did they notice a difference? But people using the VPN functionality like IPsec or, or anything that used AES, it was tremendously faster. I mean, you could, I think it either doubled or tripled your VPN throughput. Yeah. And Nick so, is really trying to sponsor and, and support encrypted and safe use of the internet. So having good encryption software and good encryption hardware support is, is something they're advocating for and pushing for and part of their business model, which now enter the WireGuard fiasco. Somebody remind me oh. what WireGuard is again. So WireGuard is, a, is an in-kernel VPN server that was promoted as being st stripped down in the sense of not having 15, 20,000, you know, legacy protocols on it. It was much simpler, much easier to configure, much faster, and a much more direct and safer way of running a VPN. It was the idea. How is so, this any different from any of the other in-kernel VPN solutions that have come and gone? I don't even know. Well, so I like a big difference is like with OpenVPN, it, it does much more than setting up an interface. It does. It handles routing. It does 
uh, all these other things for you. Whereas WireGuard, the core of WireGuard is not that. It is strictly a an interface that can be brought up that will do, uh, you know, a VPN connection uh, or an encrypted connection to another peer. It's not going to be. It, it's not designed to do. Uh, routing. It's not or t- to deal with routing, modifying the routing table, that kind of thing. It's also not designed to do, you know, a lot of people want MFA on their VPN. By default, WireGuard doesn't handle that. Now, there's ways to support that with WireGuard. There's various plugins or extra pieces that you can call out, but that's something that's never going to be in WireGuard's core because, again, it's strictly focused on bringing up that interface. About 20 years ago, there was a VPN in-kernel project for Linux called Sipe, I think. And I remember that becoming super popular. And right as I was, you know, figured I should, you know, actually learn what this was all about, um, it got discovered as not quite as secure as we thought it was, and it quickly sort of faded out from from common use. And so I, I see some history repeating itself. Well. What's a thin client versus a... <laughs> that pendulum always swings back and forth. Exactly. But the... I'm, I actually really want to use WireGuard, but I just haven't had the opportunity yet. I've still continued, like, I have, uh, between, like, my house and some other sites that I manage, it's still IPsec. So moving back to the NetGate thing and the kernel, um, the NetGate folks sponsored some work to bring WireGuard to PFSense. Yes, it was a missing part the of the product to get that into FreeBSD's kernel because they needed it to sell it for um, PFSense. And honestly, they're doing a good thing if they're bringing more secure and efficient security stuff to FreeBSD. And I, I would like be that. all that... about having that support in PFSense. I would that would encourage my use of it. Then the person they hired to do the work, you know, submitted it, and apparently there's a debate going on. About the implementation of said developer and... That's kind of you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm trying not to pick a side here. I, I'm trying to be as, as fair as possible. And uh, basically, some of the core free of speed developers, which I believe one of them is actually a developer of WireGuard or instrumental in, in development of WireGuard, uh, said, no, we're, we, can't inc- we can't include this. It needs to be... All this needs to be basically rewritten. Yeah, the WireGuard folks saw the commits, really wasn't aware that this process was going on until they started seeing commits and started looking at the commits because it's, you know, it's their protocols. And if this uh, support ends up being really poor, it's going to give a black eye to the entire WireGuard community. Um, And so they started looking at that code and realized that the committed code, the FreeBSD kernel, was really bad. I mean, left yeah. printf's trivial remote denial of services and, and remote kernel crashes. Empty validation functions that just return true regardless of input. Um obviously even you know a mere mortal could figure out that this code wasn't up to snuff. Yeah. And the guy they and- hired was a member of the a free BSD community, had commit access, and the free BSD folks are kind of have the reputation of being the adults in the room. So if you have commit access, you can, you can commit. And it's, it's kind of up to the community, the, the committer to make sure that there are appropriate code reviews done. And that's, and obviously the code wasn't reviewed before it got committed well enough. 
And then that started raising a whole nother ball of wax over what is the, how do we review code and, and protect the FreeBSD kernel and the FreeBSD code base from exactly what happened. Yep. And yeah, the, the NetGate employees that are also FreeBSD uh, committers that are kind of carefully walking on both sides of that fence. <laughs> and it's this whole sort of messed up situation where everybody's sort of vying for a little bit of advantage. And it's given the entire community a black eye. And because of the commercial nature of of the, the BSD licensing, it allows you to do things like resell things for profit and keep the changes relatively um, secret. And it there's this tension between the two sides. And it's not, not a good tension. And it's hurting the reputation of FreeBSD. It's hurting the reputation of WireGuard. Um, and it's hurting the reputation of PFSense. So it's this whole catastrophe comes back to licensing in a way. And it's it's important to pay attention to these things because it's how you understand the the profit the profit motive and the well just the motive of the people who are working on writing, distributing, promoting, all of these things, because sometimes their their interests are not aligned with yours. So I think what all these examples are showing us is that picking your license is not a trivial thing. It is not something you should just, oh, well, let's just go with this one. That you really need to think about it, plan out, and plan it in relation to your business plan. That, oh, we're starting out, we're going to be doing this. We want to build our install base. We want to become known. Uh, we'll go slightly more permissive. But as we start doing it, we'll shift to this one and plan it, socialize it, that was, I think, one of Elastic's biggest mistakes with theirs was it's a huge change and it came out of nowhere. But if if it had been planned, if it had been socialized, it wouldn't have been near as big of a deal because people saw it coming. But it, it also seemed to be, well, we went too permissive. Now we're going to go to lockdown because we went too far. It's not a trivial thing. It should be planned. It should You should really have a good idea of what you want for your business with your code and let people know. And to me, the common theme here is that all of these businesses develop open source software of some variety and kind of end up being victim of another business coming along and taking that same software and running it in a SaaS-like service model and making money and taking money away from the original company. And how do you protect yourself against that sort of situation that is really super common with open source software? Yeah, and one of the things, Ken, you said that really stands out to me is the business model part of it. The business model is your plan to make money. How does your business differentiate itself from everybody else so people will give you money and not somebody else the money? And if the only thing that differentiates you from somebody else is the fact that your code is open source, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, because then a provider, a service provider is going to come along and probably do it, if not better than you, they have the eyeballs already. I mean, at this part, I mean, let's be honest, that's the reason Amazon's Elasticsearch implementation is that much more popular. They have a lot of customers on their platform. Oh, we now, oh, here's Elasticsearch. Yes, why wouldn't I use this? Uh, you know, I mean... You can, I, I'm not going to blame Amazon for that, you know, 
It's already plugged into IAM. It's plugged into billing. It's plugged into all of those things. It's really easy exactly. to integrate. You know, if, if you use some outside ser- hosted service, you're not only going to pay for that service, you're going to pay for the bandwidth that goes to and from that service. Yeah. Why wouldn't I just launch an instance that is managed by my provider instead? Yeah, Amazon has taken a lot of the API endpoints that you could really shoot yourself in the foot with with Elastic and block them. You can't do a lot of things, which increases stability, which is part of their selling point of this is going to be more stable. And, well, it is. Now, if you need those endpoints, well, maybe it's not for you if you're that uh, that much of a power user, but for the most part... For most people, hey, I can just spin up some instances, they'll provision everything, and then I'll have Elasticsearch that works. Yeah, Elastic, the company, is host because it's so much easier on Amazon and it integrates with the rest of their environment, which more than likely you're already in. You You can't win. And since they had it in a permissive license ahead of time, it got forked. And, and it was, it was so bound many to other happen. projects. It was, it was bound to happen considering yeah. the, the path of the, the, the trajectory of the hosted services. It's just unfortunately the way it's going to go. Now, there are other projects that have, Amazon has provided all managed versions of their, their service, and they're still doing very well independently. Um, MongoDB obviously is not one of them, but, <laughs> you know. But then there's also examples of open source, uh, open source projects done right. Like in my opinion, Kubernetes is a great example of this, where that's an uh, that is an open source project that is provided by almost every cloud provider that is out there at this point. And yet the it seems as though the the environment or the ecosystem around Kubernetes is very healthy right now. And in fact, a lot of those. Uh, service providers are involved in the develop, active development and moving forward of Kubernetes. Now, Kubernetes obviously is a little different example than, say, Elasticsearch. It's core to the fundamental of of what some of these providers provide. But that still is an example. I mean, they, they, I believe Kubernetes is Apache 2 license, so it's a very permissive license. If Amazon wanted to or uh, if well, GCP wanted to, they could just fork it. But I think the difference between Kubernetes and Elastic is the business model of the software provider, the generator. Right. You know, I, I don't, and I'll, I'll admit to not knowing how the Kubernetes Foundation organization company—I don't know what they are—how the they make revenue. Yeah. Well, and I, and I was going to say yes, the CNCF who's really behind it, and I think that's what we're going to see. Or in my opinion, the shift of a lot of these core technologies that are are running what a lot of these providers are powering is going to be sponsored by something like the CNCF or right. what was you know the Apache Foundation, where a lot of these core function these uh, core pieces they're supported by some organization that is nonprofit or doesn't have a leg in this, and then the building blocks are are pieced together by these various companies. But that's a drastic shift. I mean, so Elastic. Co is trying to make a profit selling service with their software. Whereas, you know, Kubernetes is not. They're not, no. you know, well, they're another not, example. It's, it's a completely different model. And that's how, and that's, well, 
you know, some, some, sometimes it works for one way and sometimes it works another, depending on the software and depending on how they do it and blah, blah, blah. There's so many variables, you know, it's hard to, to, you know, how do you pick the winning uh, combination? Cause Lord knows if I could, I'd be uh, doing it already. <laughs> so but another example though is Redis. Redis, you know, there's a, there's a managed Redis service that Elastic, that, that not Elastic, that Amazon provides and they, they resell and they keep all the profit for. But Redis itself has managed to continuously raise money and they're still doing very well as a private company with 250 million raised in various series fundings. The most recent closed in October of last year. So Amazon doing their thing to Redis has not hurt Redis's business model, has not hurt Redis at all. Well, we can't say at all because things may have been different, obviously, if um, the adoption curve was, was in other places. But it's not saying that having Amazon offer your service is a bad thing. Again, it comes back to licenses and business models. And if you're choosing right. a restrictive license, that's a choice you can make. But when you're changing your license, you're going to upset a lot of folks who are committing to the project and, and writing patches and doing bug reports and things for the project, thinking, oh, this is an, an Apache 2 project. I know that this is you know free to use. And then, oh, they're changing the license on me. And I'm feeling a little bitter about that or whatever. And also, especially in this day and time with all of the, you know, the cloud providers or whatever, if you're building your service or building your company around a project, an open source project, and you are doing a permissive license, then you really need to think about that because it, if you're very popular, those providers will probably take it and make it as a service of their own. And if you're expecting your only way to make money is through support and then, you know, that happens... I, I, you know, that, that's something you should have thought of when you first released your code under such a permissive license, especially in this day and time. And this, this now again, to... saying I, I personally would still release it under that permissive license because I want somebody to use it, but that's just me. Yeah. And this brings us to a larger discussion about licensing in general. And it's important that everybody in this field, from somebody who just writes code to somebody who just runs operations to a purchasing director to anybody who is in technology at all have a passable understanding of what the licenses are and what they mean because it has outsized impacts on your business it has outsized impacts on what operational you can run in certain places like if you didn't realize the sspl has these these caveats you may find yourself in court and that's never a place you want to be so Opensource.org slash licenses has a fairly good list of all the licenses that have the open source initiative stamp of approval on them. So you can go and you can look up a license and see what the differences are and see what it means. Um, I am personally a fan of Apache 2 because it gives a lot of framework around, it, it spells out the freedoms very explicitly, whereas the MIT license is much more of a, hey, you can use it, don't sue us if it breaks because you shouldn't run a nuclear power plant with this or whatever. Yeah, I think the biggest reason why Apache 2 has probably surpassed MIT at this point is how it specifies about uh, patents and how you're going to handle that. And at this day and time, a lot of companies are worried about that. So Apache 2 uh, is really a modern uh, implementation of, the, of an MIT slash BSD kind of license. Yep. And yeah, patent protection is important to a lot of people. So the other license family that you've probably heard the most about is the GPL. And there have been a number of different flavors of the GPL over the years. Um, the most used one, I think, is GPL 2.0 still. Um, GPL 3.0 had a bunch of 
interesting additions that a lot of folks, especially large corporations, said, no, thank you. Um, the word on the street is that Apple stopped shipping Bash as a default shell because of this, because of the move to GPL3 and other internal tools before Apple decided to stop shipping any tools, really, because, well, Apple. Yeah, I've seen a company stop shipping GPL software really is a trend now for the last decade or so because there's there's parts of the licenses that haven't been tested in court there's the GPLv2 linking clause that's always kind of problematic and why assume these risks to your business which makes a BSD style licensing structure uh, more permissive and a lot more acceptable to use if if you want your code to be used the Apache 2 or BSD licensing lets that happen without putting legal crazy in the way. I mean, if you're holding an iPhone right now, you're using a lot of free BSD code. Oh, yeah. Like, a lot. <laughs> also, bear in mind that GPL v2, um, if you're running stuff in user land or user space rather than kernel land, you're generally safe. So a lot of folks um, will ship a Linux kernel at the lowest level and then have their proprietary software run in user land above it. And you're not violating any kind of weirdness there. You're not doing anything out of, out of bounds in terms of the license. So you can use Linux and all of its security updates and all of its performance updates and all of its other network driver stacks and all those things you need and not have to encumber your software with that license. Now, the moment you get into kernel space and start linking... Get a lawyer, make sure you understand what you're doing. Um, but it also generally means you're not going to be wanting to look at GPL3. But again, get a lawyer. And and I agree with what the GPL is trying to, to push. Um, it's just I don't like all the restrictions put on there. So. <laughs> oh, the trick of the GPL. And and yeah. I understand why it was there, especially, you know, back in the day. I, I get why that had to be there. And... Um, it's good that it's there. It's good that it's an option. It's good that some people choose it. I, me personally, I just, I like the more permissive licenses and I, and I do hope that people contribute back. And obviously if everything was under a very permissive license, we probably wouldn't see as many con contributions or that maybe this whole ecosystem wouldn't be where it is to this day. I mean, a lot of the reason there's all this sharing and goodwill is because, I mean, when I participate with an open source soft piece of software and I make a change or, or fix something, I feel I owe a duty to give it back, even if it's not MIT or under some specific license, but that's just because I feel like I owe it for all the other open source software I've used in my in my life. Yeah, the so. millions of commits from the millions of developers across the world across the last forty years who have been putting their free time or even their paid time into these projects with no direct expectation of compensation. Part of the compensation is you're building a community and the community has certain standards that they expect that people are going to follow. I like the GPL a lot. I, I really believe in a lot of its values, but I see why it's problematic for some businesses and why those businesses would prefer the, the BSD style, the MIT style, the Apache 2 style licensing, because it doesn't, it doesn't cause them to question every move they make with a lawyer. They can say, oh, we're safely within a particular set of bounds. We're going to, we're going to move forward in that. I mean, I realized a long time ago that not all IT software businesses is going to be a business in open source. Um, I work for a company that provides a service and the, soft, the source code is not available because 
we want you to buy the service. And we use a bunch of open source components. And most of our monitoring stuff that, that I'm building is open source. Um, but still, you got to have a reasonable business with a reasonable business plan with known and, and understood risks. And if you're coming down to the your business plan and you're sticking on a license and you can't figure out what to use, there's a whole bunch of tools and lists and charts and whatever that can help you find the license that meets your needs. And you should recognize that when you start, some of these decisions have long-reaching impact. So sometimes once you go down a path and you want to change your license later, you may find yourself where Elastic finds itself having charitably mishandled communication and angered a lot of folks. And now there's a fork of the product and there's a mess to deal with there. That works. Yeah. So we'll throw some links to the show notes about the licenses, like how to choose a license. Um, I really like the way Creative Commons does it for other kinds of media where you can say, these are the things I want to allow. And then it selects a license for you. It kind of has a little, like a, it's like five questions. It talks about, can other people make money off of this? Can other people do whatever? And as you pick from that list, it generates, it gets you the license that you actually want to use for that piece of art or that piece of media or whatever it is you're doing. And the, the Creative Commons licensing scheme doesn't get enough press and get enough credit. That's an amazingly well put together license structure for sharing things like a podcast or, or a book or any other sort of media. We're, we're so familiar with these source code licenses uh, that it's important that we have that same familiarity with, with the other you know, creative arts that we need to license and share. I love it when I see, I go to get some other kind of media and it has, you know, license under creative commons. It's like generally means they thought about it, that it's sane and it's going to be appropriate for what, you know, there's not going to be a surprise and that you probably can just do with it what you want as long as you're not trying to then resell it. And there are some licenses that encourage resale. They encourage modification and resale. Like they're, they're explicitly designed for that. Um, and I wish the open source software licensing array of licenses, because there's dozens of licenses that people want to use, had a similar, a similarly direct path to choosing a license and not looking up like, you know, the big grid on Wikipedia that's like, okay, there's 15 different features and there's 65 licenses and I'm going to go through and try to find which ones match the, no, that's, that's not a, a winning strategy. Choose a license.com. It'll be in the show notes is really one of the best tools that I know of that kind of walks you through that, that license choosing process for source code. And it talks about working in community, wanting to be simple and permissive or the GPL route and sort of narrows your choices to uh, something that fits the use case that you want to have or tells you where you go, where to go. If you need more choices or you're not dealing with source code, um, and is generally what I point new users at in, in trying to figure out that you need to have a license and what that license needs to say. I think this is, you know, we've, we've, we've said it a few times during the podcast that, you know, we're not lawyers, but if you're a for-profit or even a nonprofit institution, but it's going to be releasing soft software and you have enough <laughs> money or enough care you know, that you need it, you, you should probably talk to a lawyer on picking a license because 
it ain't straightforward. <laughs> you know, there might be there might be places where there's check boxes that will generate. Still, man, it's going to spit out a big thing at legalese that somebody's going to have to decipher. And you, you know, regardless of what it says, you don't don't know what's been decided in court. And if you're if you're going to try to make money off of this stuff. Spend a little up front and talk to a lawyer on picking your license. And I will add, though, that the the worst possible choice, well, apart from not having a license at all, is writing your own. Don't do it. Oh, God. Um, a, a bunch of folks were doing <laughs> really? funny Please? licensing. Say what? Please don't write your own license. I'm begging you. Yeah. Um, some people thought it would be funny years ago to make, you know, these really kind of strange licenses that have all of these bizarro provisions in them or just rewordings of the simple licenses that say do whatever you want with it but they would leave out things important things such as this software is provided as is with no warranty express or implied and there are certain pieces you really really need to have a lawyer make sure in your license if you're writing your own and with the with the proliferation of licenses you probably don't need to write your own just have a lawyer look over the one or two that you're really strongly considering and go with that. Years ago, I was working at a company. We were using a library that we found on the internet that the guy had one of those. I wrote it myself licenses. And we really liked the code. We had looked through the code itself. We're like, we would like to use this, but this gibberish, there's no way we can include it. And we literally had our lawyer write him with a with a contract that basically just said gave us as is you know basically what you would have expected in a license they put it and had the guy sign it so that we could we could use it because what he had there was just oh wow that's awesome actually, he was cool another... with it he was like oh somebody's actually going to use this in a commercial product awesome can I can I include that on my resume that you used this yes okay fine and that was his payment so, so that reminds me of another really important thing of licenses that we haven't brought up so far in that code can be released under multiple licenses in many cases. There are some licenses that are exclusive that say you can only release it under this license, but most licenses allow for dual, triple, whatever licensing. So if somebody has written a piece of software that you really love, like you're talking about, Ken, and you think it's really amazing, but the license doesn't suit your company's needs, have your legal team reach out and say, can we get a license yep. for ourselves, we'll pay you money, but can we get a license for ourselves under different terms? And very frequently, especially smaller organizations will say, sure, I'll, I'll accommodate that in one yep. way or another. So if you that, are the that copyright is always an option holder open. of the code, you can, you own the code. You can license it to a, another company, another person um, with a specific license to them. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt to ask it as long as you're friendly about ask. asking. Yeah, when we did it, the guy was just ecstatic that somebody found it and wanted to use it, and it was it that's, was a no non problem once once we made contact with him. But it was going the license as is was so badly written it was going to be a problem. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. 
I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Afro-GP.